Welcome to AI Ethics and Radiology, Emory University Center for Ethics podcast on the applications of artificial intelligence and radiology. This podcast will examine a number of issues relating health disparities and the social determinants of health to artificial intelligence. My name is John Banger. I'm a professor at the Center for Ethics at Emory University. And for this podcast, I'm very pleased to be interviewing Dr. Bib Allen, Jr. Dr. Allen is a lifelong resident of Birmingham, Alabama. He's a graduate of the University of Alabama School of Medicine, and he completed his residency in diagnostic radiology at Baptist Medical Center Hospital in Birmingham. He also completed a fellowship in abdominal imaging at Georgetown University Hospital in Washington, D.C. Dr. Allen has authored or co-authored dozens of articles in the radiology literature, and he has been a leader in numerous medical societies. He's a past president and silver medal recipient of the Alabama Academy of Radiology. He served for decades in the American College of Radiology, where his volunteer activity focused on healthcare economics. Dr. Allen joined the American College of Radiology Board of Chancellors as chair of the ACR Commission on Economics. He was later elected chair of the ACR Board of Chancellors and in 2016 as ACR president. He's currently the chief medical officer of the American College of Radiology's Data Science Institute, and he's an officer in the International Society of Radiology. Dr. Allen, it's a pleasure to be interviewing you. So let's start with a general question. From where you sit as a practicing radiologist, a researcher, and a national leader on radiology practice, tell us about your perceptions of this very complex and challenging problem of health disparities. I, I think we have to um, recognize that uh, there are indeed health disparities. And uh, for whatever reasons, uh, we know that certain population groups uh, have poorer outcomes. And I think that uh, from a physician standpoint, it's very hard for us uh, to figure it out um, mm. um, because particularly in radiology, we are relatively blind to any of the patient demographic data. I mean, I might recognize that a patient is obese from the images, or I might recognize, you know, from the age of the patient, but, you know, race and uh, socioeconomic status, insurance, no insurance, none of those things really are part of the demographic that we're that, that we in radiology are looking at. Right, right. <clears throat> and so now you can say by the time patients get images, you know, the the cat's out of the bag, they're already sick and they're they're sicker than their counterparts. Mm -hmm. um, but <clears throat> but from physicians' perspectives, I, I think we too um, you know, believe that there are societal factors that, that play into that. Uh, the social determinants of health sure, kind of kind sure. of thing. Yeah. And, and I don't know, maybe that's a, that's a cop, you know, I, I wonder if that's a cop out for physicians. Uh, should we be more on top of uh, impacting some of these social determinants of health? Or how do well, we? I, no, I, I, I think that that's it. Excuse me. I, I, <laughs> I think that's a fabulous point, though, because I was just reading this morning about some algorithms that are getting pretty good at, at predicting length of stay, acuity of illness, uh, with just a few of the patient characteristics, but lots 
of the social determinants of, uh, of health, that knowing that education level, the income level, the social support, and get this, the air quality of the community in which that patient lives, that those are really huge predictive variables for that algorithm. I mean, that just blew me away for heaven's sake. Uh, you know, and, and I think that's going to be a potentially a fantastic role uh, uh, for AI. One of the things, though, that I think we have to recognize with AI, when it uses that information to determine length of stay and so forth, um, is that sort of in the aggregate or is that really specific to a particular individual? Mm -hmm. and, what are the what is what is the explainable part of the AI? So so I mean, let me get you give you an example. We know that that AI models um, have been developed with uh, very little training, just self-identified race was the training set, and that after that, on just about every type of examination, radiologists do whether it's radiog excuse me, just playing radiography, or whether it's CT or MR, <clears throat> the, the AI can figure out the race of the patient. Yeah. <clears throat> now that's all well and good, but think about the implications of that compared with the other implications of the data that you have. And then does that go into whether the algorithm uh, actually makes a clinical diagnosis and whether or not that biases the algorithm right. in, in, incorrectly, not, not, not for good or for bad, just for bias. I mean, we always speak of unintended bias because uh, I don't think any of the developers are out to make their models not perform you know, across all populations. I think what we don't realize is that outside of the environment where these models are trained, they get pretty brutal. Uh, and whether it's demographics or whether it's uh, um, other factors, this was one um, that was uh, pretty interesting to me. And that is we were trying to demonstrate a concept called federated learning. Mm -hmm. That is, rather than centralizing a single data set, can we take the algorithm and move it from institution to institution? and then train and retrain and retrain. Mm, mm. And then they're actually uh, AI that can aggregate those results and make the model potentially more generalizable than mm -hmm. a single thing. And so in doing that, it was MGH in Ohio State. So MGH built the model to detect cardiac enlargement, really to segment the enlarged heart, the, the left ventricle. And it worked beautifully uh, in the MGH population. <laughs> right. <laughs> the Ohio State population probably good. <laughs> a lot more of my patients here in Alabama, where we have a lot more hypertension, we have a lot more obesity, uh, and then a lot more left ventricular enlargement from mm -hmm. that. And it didn't work as well. Now, they modified it, they trained it up some, but the federated learning experiment actually worked pretty well to build a more generalizable model. Mm -hmm. But you can see what I mean about how, how bias and how demographics can play a role uh, in how the AI functions. Right, uh, I, I guess the, the really challenging problem is 
if you're just going to build an algorithm uh, and, and use your data set uh, that already reflects these biases that you're talking about, well, then obviously your training data set is already biased and that's what the algorithm's gonna know. That's that, and, and that's how it's gonna make decisions on that, on that tainted uh, uh, data. So I guess the real challenge is, and maybe we could use AI to correct AI, you know, like AI heal thyself or something like that. Um, yeah. to, 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 you know, to figure out how to readjust, recalibrate, purify these data sets so that they wouldn't reflect that kind of, uh, of historical bias that, you know, we've been seeing for the last two, three, four right. years, right? Ever, well, ever since these really nice models have been, uh, uh, well, hyped a great deal. And now we're finding just as what you're saying, they don't generalize very well. Uh, and, and, and we're still there, you know, we're still kind of stuck. So that. our, you know, our work at the Data Science Institute has been to, I mean, one of our missions is to inform radiologists, that is the end users of the algorithm, uh, about what they should look for. Because ultimately, physicians as the end users of AI, until the FDA decides that autonomous AI is right for us. Yeah, which I, yeah I know. I don't, think, I don't think that they're there yet. Yeah. But at the same time, it's, it's up to us, <coughs> excuse me, to, to make sure that the AI works correctly. And I think that we do that two ways. Number one, you know, you wouldn't really um, buy a pair of shoes without trying them on. And so we're trying to provide ways. So, so however the algorithm is trained, right? Because there could be unintended bias, as you said. Um, but to expose that, you know, we need to be able to validate that across multiple sites. And then even so, we think that the site, so if you have a brain hemorrhage detection kind of algorithm or a pulmonary embolus detection algorithm, build a data set that's enriched with uh, a number of cases, your hardest cases, and then run the model against that. Don't just sort of put it in the, the uh -huh. workflow and let it find the low-hanging fruit and say, oh, it works like a champ. You know, let's, let's you know, challenge it. Yeah. And, and then the model is going to work the best the first day you use it. And after that, it's fixed. So as... Time goes on, your CT scanner may change. Yeah. Patient demographic could change. Right. Uh, certainly, I mean, let's let's say, for instance, with, with COVID, our our positivity rate in pulmonary thrombo, uh, uh, pulmonary embolus, you know, blood clots to the lung, uh, has gone way up. So we were hitting, mm. you know, fifty percent positive studies there for a while when we're usually seeing five or ten percent positive yeah. studies. And so what's the AI going to do with that? Is it going to, is it going to recognize all those? Is it going to, you know, is it going to sort of take, okay, what's my expectation here? So yeah. I mean, uh, are you talking now about a kind of a, a, an anomalous situation, a, a, a situation that comes along with the oh, pandemic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I think, I think that the COVID pandemic has created an anomalous situation. That's really the interesting. Of the prevalence of, 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 of PTE. And I, and I think we're seeing it all over the country. I don't think it's just uh -huh. my hospital. So, um, I mean, I don't have any papers or anything. But I mean, right. 
from paying attention that that's the case. So, um, so that, so, so the two things try before you buy, and then make sure you have a method of evaluating the model longitudinally. So, so what I mean by that is that, you know, you, you watch and not only do you collect whether it worked or not, but you can collect all the metadata that we call it around the exam. So what was the equipment manufacturer? What was the protocol you used? So forth and so on. So apparently, so you're a busy hospital, have a bunch of patients in the ICU and you have these things that we call, you know, doing portable chest x-rays. And so you have, you know, maybe you have multiple portable chest x-ray units and built into that is an algorithm that detects pneumothorax or some air leaking around the lung fairly common in patients on ventilators and so forth. So one of the reasons that we do chest x-rays on, on uh, sick patients uh, frequently. And um, so you say your pneumothorax detector is not working. Well, imagine how robust it is if you can then look at those data and say, well, gee, it was on machine number four. Oh my, we just did a firmware upgrade to that machine. Oh, well, now it's working like this. So those are sort of the examples of what we feel like we radiologists and users um, have to uh, do to make sure that it works across patient populations. And then imagine getting back to our disparities. uh, Is is it failing in a certain uh, demographic? Is it failing in a certain zip code? Is it failing in a Mm -hmm. certain... Mm -hmm. Uh, does it fail in uninsured patients more frequently? Yeah. Um, you know, it seems to me that this is also going to require a really good conversation and a relationship between you and the private sector. Uh, because one of the things that's, I think, implicit in what you're talking about is these algorithms that that vendor may be trying to sell you, they should be transparent that you, you should be able to know how that algorithm reached that decision rather than have the vendor plead, oh, this is a proprietary information. We can't, re- we can't, you can test it all you want, but we're not going to show you how the algorithm reached the decision that it reached. Right. Well, and, and we just had, <clears throat> it, ironically, like I said, I have them, uh, you know, we, we just had a conversation um, with the FDA this morning talking mm. about transparency. Uh, and it was really centered around um, children. And will the, how do we know that these algorithms that are cleared will work in children? Mm-hmm. And we really urge the FDA to require the, um, the, the sponsors or the developers uh, to expose the demographic around how it was trained, how many different institutions were there, what are the what is the age range of where it yep. was trained, what is all of the stuff so we can at least know a little bit in advance of, okay, I thought, you know, it might work for children. Now, the, the FDA says that they, that they look at that and might have some, you know, not cleared for use in children. I'd like to get back to something that you said earlier because it, it, uh, it, it, 
it fascinates the daylights out of me, and I and I love to bounce it off experts like you. You're talking about an algorithm that works really, really well, let's say, in your own hospital, in your own healthcare system. And then you take it outside that system, and it doesn't work so well in at Stanford or Hopkins or Duke or or you know, or 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 one of those places. Yeah, I'm still kind of bewildered as to what you do with that. I mean, do do do, do you maybe generalization shouldn't be our goal, you know? I mean, if that algorithm's working pretty well in your own healthcare system, maybe we should just be satisfied with that. By the way, maybe we should also say, look, we don't even know why it works all that well in our healthcare system, but it does work well, and we're going to be satisfied with that. I mean, what, what, what do you think of that as a, as a position? Well, there's the, there is, um, you know, and it, it's been written about called continuous learning. Uh, and a, a really landmark article that, that kind of covered the topic was, was uh, written collectively from several department chairs, really not only in the United States, but around the world, uh, talking about uh, the subject. And a graphic from that article that I use is that they talk about you know radiology, an AI-enabled um, uh, examination, and it mm-hmm. works and it's great and it works is great and it doesn't work. Well, what do you do with that? What yeah. do you throw it in the trash? Well, what if you took that and gave that feedback to the algorithm to say, hey, look, this one wasn't right. What can you learn from this case, and how do you do that? And that again, process is called continuous learning. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, the FDA algorithms are locked. If we allowed local continuous learning, it could be better. But then how in the world do we regulate that? And how does the government know? And, you know, radiologists are humans, too. What if the continuous learning is getting bad data? And so how do, you know, how, how do you input that data back for continuous learning. You say, okay, great, okay. So Bib, who's not very smart radiologist, disagreed with AI. We're gonna get two more radiologists who are a lot smarter than Bib, and they're gonna look at it. And if they all three agree, then it goes back. So some level of Mm -hmm. ground truth before you provide that feedback to the model to do that. Um, You know, the other thing is for these academic places that are building their own models, and they're working pretty well with their own data. If their goal is taking care of patients, why would they care? Why would they commercialize? Why wouldn't they just say, okay, we've got it and we built it here? Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, then a practice like mine, we'd never have any AI if it weren't for commercial developers, right? None of us, you know, we don't have the research horsepower to yeah. build thousands. You know, I mean, if you look at all you just look at a 10 year horizon, you know, you know, you think that that there'll be thousands of AI models that are out there for all sorts of diseases. Well, hospitals like mine don't have the resources to build all that. Right. And and, rely. But but nevertheless, you do have the data. You do have the images. Uh, The the private sector doesn't have that. That's or, or the access that they have to images oftentimes is a an image set that's not very good. It's yeah, or you, or you, you mean the non-medical 
That's right. You say private right. I'm just getting confused. But yeah, the, I, I just think non-government. But what you're meaning is that the, that the developers that are data scientists and not physicians and not employed by hospital don't have access to data in these companies. That's right. They absolutely how, need how, how to collaborate with the university or buy data. Right. Or right. Or something like that. That, right. So, so those collaborations are inevitable. Uh, and, and, you know, from, from my vantage point, being interested in the ethical dimensions of all of this, you, both of you, the, 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 the academic institution and the, and the private uh, sector, you got to be on the same ethical page uh, here. And, no, absolutely. And, the, the promise of AI is uh, still astounding. And um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I refuse to be pessimistic. Uh, at this point, I've, I've told and I still agree with I'm, I'm old enough that I, I lived through every for what everybody would call the golden years of radiology from, you know, just barely having CT when I started to mm -hmm. now we have MR and PET and all of these great things. But if I could start over again, I would because I just think AI is going to be transformational. And I think that when we get over the developers need to just capture the low hanging fruit. I mean, you know, I can, you know, I can teach novices to recognize most brain hemorrhages in a few hours. Um, now, are they good enough to do <laughs> ED radiology? No. Yeah. Are they going to bind every hemorrhage? No, but you're the 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 end of the easy cases. Maybe ninety out of a hundred, and so you're really now focused on those those ten. Right. right. Um, you know, I used to I used to tell people. I said, you know, if um, if you went to work for me on my day to do mammography and you just said every case was negative, you'd be right 99.05 or so percent yeah. of the time, yeah. and you wouldn't hurt anybody by having to call them back for extra views <laughs> or anything like that. But nobody thinks that, you know, uh, we should do mammography that way, otherwise we wouldn't do it. So, I mean, I'm just sort of, you know, just talking about the low-hanging fruit is, yeah kind of the low hanging fruit. But imagine an AI ability to look at a brain tumor and predict a phenotype of responsiveness versus non-responsiveness to radiation or chemotherapy that us humans can't see. Right, right. Or, or, or the day. Just focus on the things day. that we can't, just focus on the things that physicians can't do. Yeah. I, is my... Uh, or, or or, or the day, or the day when some uh, scanning technology comes along and picks up a breast cancer that's a couple molecules old, or something like that—that that, that a human being couldn't possibly uh, do. I don't think you're a pessimist, Bib. I think you're a realist about this because I, you know, I totally agree with you. It may not. This may not happen in two, three years, but five years from now, ten years from now, twenty years from now. Yes, these models are. Doubtlessly, I mean, if you and I were a betting person, it would be extremely reasonable to say, "Yeah, they're going to ultimately right. be fabulous." Uh, the, the day will come when some of these models will surpass the average radiologist competence uh, uh, level. 
Um, and then we better be ready for, you know, how we're going to handle that and how the standard of care is going to rock and roll uh, when, when that day, when that day comes, when that day happens. But, but again, I think we're still a very long way uh, from there. So perhaps we can finish this up uh, and, and say, uh, Dr. Allen, as you read the tea leaves, uh, especially, oh, and, and we want to talk about health disparities uh, too. What, what are the kinds of things that you think radiologists, professional organizations, medic, medicine in, in general, and government uh, too, for that matter, should be doing with regard to the uh, painful uh, uh, problem of health disparities that we have in, in the United States. What would be your recommend, recommendations for this? Well, n- number, you know, first and foremost, if you look at, if you look at just physicians, just at health systems, and just at the government, or just at HHS and the government, um, we don't have enough to totally bring to bear on the problem. I, I think that, uh, as you pointed out to begin with, the predictors of bad outcomes are um, the social, so many of the social determinants of mm-hmm. that we have to figure out a way to do that. Now, I think that physicians should take a leading role, a more leading role. We should be proactive rather than reactive. Um, um, I think, um, and as you said to begin with, um, it using AI to predict and identify people that should come for care mm-hmm. and bringing those people to care. Um, but you know, it's gonna it's very hard when those very patients are some of those that don't trust the system. They or or they, they may not have good transportation sure. a healthcare facility, right? Uh, and yeah, and I know what you're saying. I mean, in terms of vaccine hesitancy, and, it's, um, and that's yeah. something that we didn't talk about. But sometimes health disparities are the result of humans, human choices and human decisions. Right. And just telling people, well, you're ignorant and you should know better. So, you know, we, we've got to figure out it, better that ways. Doesn't work. Yeah, we've got to figure work. out better ways to educate and convince people. You know, um, yeah, I, I mean, frankly, I, I would I would like to see this happening uh, at at our at our kindergarten through high school level where our, maybe our science teachers especially should be teaching our youngsters how to differentiate good evidence from bad evidence and what is evidence and that your position is best if you have good reasons for having that, uh, that, right. that position. I I don't know. I, I, I felt um, uh, a little bit right now that we've, we've, we've lost that analytic in healthcare. Uh, the, the end is sort of more important than the data. You know, it used to be we'd have a hypothesis, we'd do some experiments, we'd mm-hmm. get a positive result, we'd send it around the, you know, to our buddies at the other universities. They'd see if they could duplicate it. Um, they would say, Bib, you know, you were stupid, you should have done this. And you know, we fix it and we do, and, and we're always questioning and yeah. it's always, and it's always professional and it's always, um, you know, intellectually honest. It's not disparaging. Yeah. Or, nor is it politicized back in the good old days, right? It wasn't, and, it wasn't. And politicized. So I, I, I feel like that, that doctors have, you know, 
in in some places have lost the uh, a little bit of control of the 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 scientific of process. the narrative. Yeah, of yeah. the, uh, of the you know, and I don't know. That's uh, I mean, I'm sure there are people on both sides of that. Uh, um, but everybody just identifies one paper that they think supports them and just forgets that they're 10 on the other side. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. You know, and, and the other thing talking about health disparities is it, it, it is so complex and it sometimes it's very difficult to disentangle the correlation, you know, that all, how all of these uh, factors cluster together and make the prediction versus the actual cause of, of this, right. this, this individual's, uh, uh, illness or uh, or disease. So, you know, I, I think, and uh, this is what's going to make it so very, very challenging. All of us have to get together. I mean, the, 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 the politicians, the educators of our society, the medical community, uh, and, uh, and also when we talk about health disparities, the, the vast differences in income levels, which for me is just really fundamental to the problem. I think uh, our health disparities are going to continue uh, if we still see great income disparities in the. Well, you're 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 right, and I and I started out by talking about globally and high income countries versus low and middle income countries. But you know what? Even in the United States, we have the same situation. We have. Absolutely you know, uh, high income areas. And then we have, you know, lower and middle income areas. And I think you're exactly right. When you look at those in the lower ones, you know, and so how, how we lift that, that group, uh, um, you know, because one begets the other. If these people aren't healthy, it's going to be able, it's going to be hard for them to climb out of the Exactly of, right. Of, of the poverty hole. And uh, again, it's going to be that correlation of things. It's it's likely that their low income is going to be tied to poor education, is going to be then tied with uh, poor health care, poor access to health care, comorbidities, all of those kinds of, uh, uh, of things. It's very, very challenging to, uh, to look at and to try to say, well, where do I start uh, uh, with this again, because things are so politicized. You know, I thought of a way though to end our interview on a positive note, and and maybe it's this: as our algorithms get better, as they become more widespread and more used, the cost of radiology services, and from my reading, about half of the world's population do not have good access to radiologic services. They, it, it may plummet enormously so that AI may be a kind of a savior, I mean, for a lot of the world's population that doesn't have access to good quality, affordable care. Right. You know, before the pandemic, we were um, involved with a group of radiologists in South Africa and, you know, there are other opportunities. Um, and imagine that if a, a TB detection algorithm could be built into a portable chest radiographic unit that didn't have to depend on somebody being able to interpret the chest X-ray, they would just know you're normal, you're normal, you're normal. you might have TB, you're, you know, you're coming with me or you're, you know, doing this and they don't have to be 
aggregated. They don't have to be sent. They just they just happen. And again, that to me is the promise uh, of AI for low and middle income countries. Absolutely. Indeed. And we can do that disease by disease by disease. We don't have to practice the whole spectrum of radiology. We just need to find the diseases that we, that are killing people that we can impact. Indeed. All right. I think that's a good place to end. Thanks again to Dr. Bib Allen for his insights on AI and health disparities. Thanks also to Sam Kim, who did the audio production of this podcast, and to the staff at Emory University's Center for Ethics, who maintained the podcast webpage. We also thank the Advanced Radiology Services Foundation and Emory University's Department of Radiology and Imaging Sciences for their financial support. And in case you're wondering, that's me at the piano. Please follow the projects and activities of Emory Center for Ethics on Facebook and Twitter and at our website, ethics.emory.edu. I'm John Banjo. Join us for future podcasts, and thanks for listening.